Neil, it's, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. I've been a fan of your work ever since I was first introduced to the Conversations with God series. And I think it's fair to say that this series has changed the lives of, of countless people all over the world. It certainly changed mine and set me on a path that led to, um, <clears throat> well, it led directly to what I'm doing now. And the fact that I'm able to sit down and, and speak with you directly about your work, it's, it's quite a privilege for me personally. And I'm, I'm very grateful for you taking the time to do this with me. Well, those are very kind words, Jay. Thank you for saying that. And it's nice to be here with you as well. How may I serve you? Well, um, I, like I said, before we got on record, I want to have a little talk about, uh, I want to begin this discussion really with some questions surrounding specifically the Conversations with God series. And then we can jump into your latest work, a book titled The God Solution. But to start things off, um, I was just wondering if you could provide for those listening, a little bit of background on yourself. How is it that you came to write this series of books and, and what impact has it had on you in your own personal spiritual journey? I'd be happy to, Jay. Um, it, it began uh, about 26 years ago when I had run into yet another uh, rough patch in my, in my life. I say yet another because all of us have had those experiences where things aren't going as well as we would like them to go. But in this case, in my life, about everything that could go wrong was going wrong at once. You know, usually earlier in my life, maybe my relationship wasn't going so well, but my, my career was doing fine and, and my health was okay. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe maybe I was running into some rocky, rocky times at my place of business, at, at my work. But my relationship was going fine, or my health, and you know, one or the other. I could never seem to get all three going well. But, but now it was just the opposite of flip. That is, all three was had fallen apart at the same moment. Um, my relationship with my significant other at that time had ended. Um, my um, my job ended. I was let go, downsized, as they like to say in the corporate world. So, but what it came down to is I was simply out of work, out of a job, rather abruptly and unexpectedly. And so but those two things weren't bad enough. At the same time, I wound up in an automobile accident. Uh, in, in, an older gentleman turned his car right in front of me, uh, and, and I wound up crashing into him. I was not driving very rapidly, uh, 25 miles per hour, which is not fast, but... Um, I, you know, I did some damage to my car and his car, but worse yet, I broke my neck. I suffered a broken neck, and it wasn't a what you'd call a hairline fracture. It was a three-quarter inch avulsion fracture of the seventh cervical vertebrae posteriorly. I remember the wording of the you know, of the report exactly because it affected my life so profoundly. A three-quarter inch fracture of your neck is big enough to put a pencil through. So we're not talking about a hairline fracture. We're talking about a very severe break and separation. And, you know, what the surgeons told me afterward at the hospital, it's amazing you didn't die. People often die with that kind of a fracture because it severs the spinal cord, or at least uh, they're, they're um, you know, paralyzed for life from the neck down. But you managed to escape both. It's going to take a while to rehabilitate your neck, but but you escaped both of the worst outcomes. So I thought, wow, interesting. What an interesting thing for all three things to happen at the same time. My relationship, my health, and my work all falling apart at the same time. 
So uh, as I was trying to rehab myself, they gave me what's known in the United States as a Philadelphia collar. That's a plastic collar that you put under your chin and it fits the space between your chin and the top of your body. And it holds your head up, literally, literally holds your head in place. Because the doctor said, imagine having a basketball on the head of a pin. That's what we're dealing with right now. So you don't want to take that collar off for any reason. You wear it in the shower. You wear it when you sleep. You wear it 24 hours a day. Do not take the collar off. I said, okay, I got it. I got it. But there I was trying to get my life back together again. At one night, uh, J.I. called out. I woke up at two, uh, 2.23 in the morning. And I, I woke up in, you know, in, before dawn. And I was lying there in bed. And I called out. I just really cried out to God. Okay, if you're really there, if there really is a God, what is going on? What does it take to make life work? And what have I done to deserve a life of such ongoing struggle, one thing after the other? You know what? Tell me the rules. I'll play. I swear I, I will play. Just give me the rule book. Because here I am, I'm thinking that I'm doing, you know, I'm playing fair. I'm a fairly nice human being. I haven't hurt anybody drastically in my life. I don't cheat. I don't rob. I don't steal. I don't lie. You know, what am I doing wrong here? What is it I don't understand? And I was furious. And I was so angry that I threw the covers back and went out to the living room in this tiny little uh, grandma apartment. Uh, uh, it was a little cottage behind someone's house in which I live. And I sat down on the couch. Uh, and I wrote, it happened to be a yellow legal pad on the coffee table in front of me. So I wrote those questions out on the coffee table. What does it take to make life work? I don't know what I thought I was doing. You know, just, just writing it out, wanting to get out of my system, I guess. Writing a, 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 you know, an angry letter to God. And that's when I heard a voice uh, over my right shoulder. And, and a very gentle, soft voice that simply said, I can't even describe whether it was male or female, but it was just it was a very soft voice that simply said, Neil, do you want answers to these questions? Or are you just venting? Of course, I turned around, there was no one there, and I thought, terrific. Not only am I you know, angry as anything, but I'm going out of my mind. There's nobody in the room. What, 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 what am I imagining here? But then I kind of sat there on the couch and I thought, stewing in my own juice as it were, Jay, I thought to myself, well, you know what? I am venting. But if, if somebody has answers, I'd sure as hell like to receive them. And like that, like a download, in my mind, I received answers to of the questions I had asked. And I had the presence of mind. I, I wasn't even dreaming about ever writing a book. I was just wanting to keep track of what I was, how do I put it, hearing in my mind. The, there was no voice outside of myself anymore. It was all in my mind. It sounded like the, the voice of my own thoughts, you know, the voiceless voice of one's own thoughts, except that uh, what was being said to me were things I'd never heard before in my life. And even some of the statements were in direct contradiction of what I had heard before in my life you know, about life, about God, about how it all works, statements that were totally in contradiction, even a violation of many of the so-called truths that I had come to hear in my life about life, about God, about myself, 
And, and so you were you so you were you were Christian at, at this point. Is that correct? No, no, that would no? be that. I, I was not. I didn't belong to any particular religion. Right. Okay. At this at this point in my life, you know, I was forty nine years old. You know, so I had gone past the my fascination with any particular faith tradition. I had looked at them hypothetically and, you know, uh, and philosophically, but not from a place of of adopting those beliefs. I did it when I was young, when I was you know a child, and as a young man when I was nineteen or twenty. Yes, I did adopt some of those faith traditions, but not not at this point in my life. But I but I did still have an idea that there's something out there, there's something larger. By the way, interestingly enough, uh, Jay, I don't know whether you've seen this statistic lately, but anthropological surveys have shown in the past five years that I was not alone in that idea. Eight out of 10 people, according to those surveys, you can look this up on the internet, eight out of 10 people in every culture on the planet believe in some sort of higher power. They say, yeah, there's something larger going on. There's something bigger out there. They, They just don't know how to describe it, what it wants, what it needs, what it requires. How much less how to use it, but and what and what happens if we don't do what it you know demands, so to speak? Uh, but so we can't seem to agree on anything else except that we do agree. Apparently, eighty percent of us agree that something is larger than us exists out there in the cosmos, and so, some of us call it God, Yahweh, Jehovah, you know, wh- you know, Allah, whatever word Brahman that uh, we choose to use to describe that ineffable essence. That we refer to as the divine. So here I am writing this, writing this letter to God, and I'm getting these answers. And so, of course, the answers I was getting brought up other questions. So I would say, "Well, yeah, but what about this?" And then I would get an answer. And I, yeah, but what about this? I had all my yeah buts. I call them yeah buts. Yeah, but what about that? Oh, okay, yeah, but what about this? And that led into an ongoing dialogue that Jay had me setting up for the rest of the night. I think it was ten o'clock in the morning before I stopped with the experience of questions and answers. I was astonished that this dialogue was going on in my mind, but I didn't miss a word of it. I took it all down and uh, I found it fascinating. Then the next night, you're gonna be sorry you asked this question because I got a three and a half hour answer, but I'm gonna try to keep it condensed. Uh, So the the next night I I got up uh, at 4.20 in the morning and I thought, I really wanna continue that experience. So I reached for my, I went to the living room, reached for my yellow legal pad, and picked up where I left off. This went on for, I would say, three or four weeks until I had pages and pages. I mean, really, I, I went out and bought a couple more yellow legal pads. I had four or five yellow legal pads filled with handwritten questions and answers that continued to fascinate me. Then somewhere in the middle of that experience, I received this information. I was told, you will make of this one day a book, and it will be read by many people. Many people will have access to it. And I thought to myself at that point, ah, 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 now I got you. Whatever this is that's going on. I thought, I started to call it my own private conversation with God, but, but I thought, you know, now we got you, because this is a statement that could be measured Jay, you got to understand the importance of this statement. This will one day become a book. It was not theoretical. It was not theological. It was not conceptual. It, it was an absolute statement of fact. All the rest of the stuff I was receiving were, in fact, philosophical, theological statements. Could be true, could not be true. Who would know? Who would know? But here was a statement I could measure. This will one day become a book. Would either happen or it wouldn't. 
And I thought, of course, it's not going to become a book. No one, no publisher in their right mind is going to publish a, 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 you know, a book, handwritten notes from some guy who claims to be, you know, I could just see the, uh, the, you know, the editor or the publisher of one of those publishing houses going out to the workroom floor where his editors are all sitting at desks. I could just imagine him. Hey, hey, hang on, guys. Hang on. Hold the presses. Stop the presses. I got a guy here who's talking to God. It's not going to happen. Of course, I knew it wasn't in a million years. No one's going to publish this stuff. Boy, was I wrong. Not only did a publisher pick it up and put the book out. Excuse me, not bragging, just saying. It sold a million copies. More than a million copies. They lost count after the first million. Wound up being translated into 37 languages wound up being read around the world. They tell us now in New York, anecdotally, probably since that time to now, 15 or 20 million people have laid their eyes on that book, either by buying it or having it given to them by a friend. You know, just read the book. It's, it's what they call in the publishing business a hand-to-hand -hand book. That is, it's a book that's handed from hand to hand to hand, passed on down from husband to wife, wife to brother-in-law, brother-in-law to sister, sister to uncle, uncle to aunt, and just gets handed on down. Five or six people, they're telling us in New York, have probably read every single copy that's actually been purchased. So I thought, oh, wow, this is interesting. Clearly, this was never meant just for me. Clearly, I'm simply an instrument, a messenger, if you will, not even a teacher. Very clearly, I don't accept the uh, label of teacher, but clearly I was given the opportunity to be a messenger to pass on to millions of people what has been given to all of us to become more aware of and to more deeply understand. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I, 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 by the way, I should add that um, after uh, this experience of the first series of notes being accepted for publication, I continued to have the, the the experience. I didn't stop having what I called my conversations with God. Quite to the contrary, uh, I continued to have back and forth dialogue, like, still by hand, until I finally switched to a computer somewhere around book three. Um, but I continued to have the experience of back and forth question and answer, question and answer, until ultimately nine books were produced in that Q&A format, question, answer, question, answer, including a, a book more recently, just two or two and a half years ago, called Conversations with God, book four, but several other books in between with other titles, Tomorrow's God, um, and, and Friendship with God, Communion with God, and uh, other books in the so-called With God series. So it turns out there are nine books full of uh, dialogue, uh, the most recent one of which is Conversations with God, book four, with the subtitle, Awaken the Species. And so there you are. Uh, that's that's my answer. That's my 12 and a half minute answer to the 30 <laughs> second question. No, I, I really I really appreciate the answer. And I think it was good to give people a, a bit of a foundation to understand where you're coming from. And, uh, you know, you bring up the 
the fourth book, uh, The Conversations with God, God, Book Four, Awaken the Species. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've interviewed different people around consciousness, but you're actually the first guest on my platform that does not have a specific professional interest in the subject of UFOs. I've, in, I've interviewed people within the US intelligence and, and military communities, mainstream journalists, uh, PhD scientists, and people who claim to have experienced various aspects of this phenomenon. And I was, I was drawn to the subject of, of UFOs due to my own personal experience, which occurred after reading the Conversations with God series and subsequently going on my own spiritual journey. And I would have never expected that journey to take me to the UFO subject. And what truly amazes me, Neil, as I said to you before, is that your Conversations with God series in so many ways guided me to this subject. And then once I had my own experiences, um, it, it, it kind of, you, it, it was just this unbelievable synchronicity because you released this fourth book in the series titled Conversations with God, Awaken the Species, an unexpected dialogue. And, you know, it, it's hard for me to properly articulate just how powerful of an experience it was to be a witness to the UFO phenomenon in some format, and then to have the author of the books that guided me to this subject in so many ways release another book, which is primarily focused on what you call highly evolved beings or what are, what were called to you highly evolved beings in the universe, even within other dimensions who are seeking to assist humanity as it matures and it ventures out into space. Um, now, since 2017, there has been a massive shift in the conversation of UFOs. The US government has made a series of announcements and internal changes including the creation of a, of a task force designed to investigate ongoing incidents with military personnel. And there's a major report coming from the Pentagon set to arrive in June regarding UFOs. So you have United States officials coming out and, and simply stating that this issue is real, that UFOs are indeed real. So the subject's being taken far more seriously than it ever has been. And I'm sure my listeners would be really interested in hearing from you what are your thoughts on the UFO phenomenon as it relates to the content of your fourth book? And, and also, how did this fourth book come to be? Because as you titled it, it was for you an unexpected dialogue. Well, let's start with the second question first. How it came to be is I simply woke up one night uh, in August of 2017, I, I believe it was, um, and uh, unexpectedly um, found myself urged is the word I would use to get back to my keyboard. Right. At that point, I was doing all of my writing on a computer. And, but I had this deep urge, and I, I, and I hadn't felt that urge for almost 10 years, that, that particular kind of feeling. It has a particular energetic signature. That's the only way I can describe it. And so the energetic signature was familiar to me, uh, although I, I had not experienced or felt that particular energetic, as I said, for over a decade. But I went, wow, am I, am I being invited to, to have another dialogue? Because I really thought at that point that my conversation with God, if you will, had concluded, that I'd re you know, reached the conclusion uh, of that experience and that I was uh, finished with that particular level of encounter. But now here was this feeling. So I jumped out of bed. Again, it was whatever, 4.25 in the morning. And I threw the covers back. I went down to my little writing room. Uh, and I began to uh, produce what became uh, Conversations with God, book four. That um, book came through me in 
It was a full-length book, uh, but it came through me in about three and a half weeks, very quickly, very rapidly. I was writing, you know, I was bringing the dialogue through, I want to say, maybe six or seven, eight hours a day. Wow. And, uh, I stopped, you know, to eat a, eat a little bit of lunch and have a little bit of dinner. Then I went right to sleep because I was getting up at 4 o'clock, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, wanting to get back to the process. So uh, that's how the book came. And the book was astonishing to me in that I thought really there wasn't much more to say. But there weren't very many more questions I had to ask. But it did open uh, into more deeply into the areas of highly evolved beings, which uh, were uh, abbreviated in the book as HEBS, H-E-B-S. Uh, and I, I, I began to affectionately call them HEBS, highly evolved beings. So um, I then came to understand, to answer your first question, uh, what is what is my thought about the UFO phenomena and all of that? Of course, uh, it's not simply a phenomena, it's a reality. We, we, we call it a phenomena because we don't yet fully understand it. But almost everything that we now understand to be part of our real world, our so-called scientific discoveries, our medical discoveries, uh, all these um ventures into into the world uh, of, of deeper understanding were once called phenomena. Now they're not called phenomena, they're called reality. So I, I call it reality, you know, 20 years ahead of time. <laughs> even in even in the earlier books, in book three it was talked about. Yeah, there was some mention. Direct, directly. So, so um, my answer to your first question is, it's a reality. Clearly, highly evolved beings exist elsewhere in the universe. Clearly, there is intelligent life in the cosmos, even if there isn't any on Earth. But clearly, there, <laughs> clearly there is intelligent life uh, elsewhere in the universe, and it would be impossible to imagine that there is not. I mean, my goodness, there are billions and trillions and kajillions of stars, to say nothing about how many planets revolve around those stars, which we call suns. You know, our stars is our sun, of course. So around every one of the kajillions of stars uh, are, is a galaxy of, uh, or a solar system, a, 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 a cluster of, of planets. And surely on at least one of those other planets, if not millions, if you please, there is uh, intelligent life. And, and surely some of that intelligent life has advanced, if you will, beyond where we are now in terms of our evolutionary process as a species. So I'm very clear uh, in my understanding and in my deepest belief that highly evolved beings are not figments of anyone's imagination. They exist in the universe. I also was told directly that they are looking, if, you, if I could put it this way, looking after us in a certain way, doing what they can without directly interfering, without directly inserting, you know, certain pieces of information that would be far more advanced than we are able to uh, to accept or to work with uh, in, in in a beneficial way. Be kind of like a teaching calculus to a four, fourth grader, uh, you, you know, information they couldn't use and that could even in some ways be dangerous. So um, the there is, you know, a universal, um, in my understanding, a universal rule, if you please, a universal clarity that that um, civilizations that are advanced 
do not pass on to primitive civilizations, and ours, by the way, is primitive. If you don't think that we are a primitive civilization, just look at yesterday's headlines. Obviously, we're primitive. We have world leaders insulting each other. I mean, insulting each other. You know, basically acting like two-year-olds. Our missiles are bigger than your missiles. And if you're not careful, we'll send our missiles your way and destroy your country. We have the ability, you know, blah, 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 like, like two-year-olds arguing in the backyard, except that they're arguing with very dangerous tools, including, as we know, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, and, and to say nothing of psychological weapons. So um, we are a very, very primitive, extremely primitive species, just now growing into what we could call metaphorically our adolescence as a civilization, just beginning to even think of life in ways that we have not been able to imagine before now. And so the question is, who's going to win the human race? Are we going to win this human race? Or will we lose the race and destroy ourselves? I want to say again, because we've done it before. Well, that, that's really quite a profound statement to leave it on. And that's actually leads directly into what I wanted to ask you next, because the fourth book in this series consistently circles back on how this time right now in the human story is the perfect time for advancement of the species. Now, you know, given the current global pandemic, the potentiality of, of conflict between world superpowers, like you were just saying, the growing disparity between those in positions of wealth and power and those in positions of poverty and, and perceived powerlessness, it would seem to me that, you know, we've possibly entered into a, a period of necessary darkness so that we might wake up to a greater truth via these global stimulus. Um, you know, what do you personally see for the future of humanity? Do you see a light on the horizon? Are you seeing a perfect time for advancement of the species? Well, I'm not going to contradict the messages that have been given to me, so the answer is yes. I, I do see that, I, I, and I do have hope uh, that that is going to be the outcome. I do think, however, that time is not unlimited, that we don't have you know oh, any time, don't worry about it, that I think that we are entering a period uh, that's critical time-wise, and that we need to make some changes and some alterations in our behaviors and in our understandings and in our most fundamental beliefs rather quickly. I, by quickly, I don't mean hours or minutes or days or weeks, but certainly we can't afford to wait another 50 or 100 years to make the kinds of changes in our beliefs and our behaviors that I'm talking about. So I think that time is limited, but yes, this is the perfect time because, and we've, as I mentioned a minute ago, we approached this time once before when we had the technical capability of virtually destroying life as we know it uh, on this planet. And we did that. We, we did that once before. So here we are again, cycling back to that same place where we have the ability to bring an end to life as we know it uh, on this planet. And we have to make the same decisions we were invited to make once before in the days of Atlantis and uh, other so-called mythologies that we've heard about uh, that turned out to be, in fact, true. 
It's, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and you, you know, you probably won't, won't be aware of this just because you're not um, embedded within the, the culture and the research of UFOs. And, and, but there are people, especially recently, um, and there is a, a certain family called the Bledsoes who have had interactions with, with some form of beings uh, that appear to them. And they actually had some interest from the US government. And, and there's some evidence of the US government having interest in this family. But similar things are being said to other people, according to, uh, you know, these testimonies from other intelligences that were at this crossing point that were at this fork in the road. Um, so I, I think that that's definitely something to, to very much consider that we're heading into this into this very important fundamental time in the human story. Now, um, before we move on to your recent book titled The God Solution, I just wanted to quickly gauge your thoughts on something. So um, the UFO issue is being treated by the US government as a, as a potential threat to national security. That's how, they're, that's how they're speaking about it. They're talking about incursions by UFOs into military facilities and training ranges and, and how they're doing this with impunity and showing performance capabilities that are far beyond our own technical capabilities as humans. And for the uninitiated civilian who's just kind of seeing this come up, come up on their news, which it's now doing, it's, it's becoming a, a part of the talking points in mainstream media, it can all sound quite scary. So I, 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 I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but I'd just like to kind of repack it. Do you personally feel like the US government that we need to be in some way fearful that this could be a threat in regards to the occupants of, of these unidentified objects? Uh, I'm, fearful is not a word I would use, but cautious is a word, uh, and, and attentive are two words that I would use. When I approach uh, the busiest intersection, or at least one of the four busiest intersections in the world, which I would call Times Square in New York City, I promise you I don't walk across the street in Times Square with blindfolds on and earplugs as well. You know, I look both ways. I listen to you know what I'm, uh, what's going on, uh, and I use caution and attentiveness uh, to what, it, what I, but not fear. I'm not afraid to cross the street, nor am I afraid to encounter what I'm encountering when I look both ways and open my ears to what's going on. But I certainly use caution, and and I pay attention. So um, I'm not sure that uh, people who read these reports may feel fearful. Um, but I, I think that um, the message that I experience, the message that I get from these reports is one of caution. Let's no longer just write these off as the meanderings or the, you know, the, the mental exercises of people who are imagining things. So I think the military is saying we're, we're no longer willing to write it off. Uh, I don't think that the military is running scared so much as it's simply sounding a note of caution and saying to uh, people in higher places in government and elsewhere, we need to pay attention. Yeah. This is something we need to pay attention to because it is possible, in fact, they believe it's true, that there are entities that are taking a close look at, at our civilization and doing so with impunity whether it's at military installations or any other way. But, you know, if they wanted to do us damage or some kind of hurt, and I'm not sure that this is what the military is saying in our country. By our country, I mean the United States where I live. I'm not sure that the military is saying so much, but I think uh, what's important for us to understand is, you know, if these 
highly evolved beings, if these entities, if you will, uh, intended to do us damage, harm, they could have done that 150 years ago or earlier, to say nothing of last week or last month or last year or 20 years ago. So the, uh, the evidence suggests that they mean us no harm, but that they simply want to find out and to learn and are finding ways to discover with impunity what our current capabilities are so that they don't inadvertently create a response from the military establishments of this world that could uh, inure against our own benefit, that could hurt us. You know, much as you would tell a child, you know, be careful, don't play with matches. But before you did that, you'd have to find out whether the child even found a way to get access to matches or even know what matches are or how they work. So I think that what the highly evolved beings are doing is they're, they're acting as you know, college graduates with, with PhDs looking into the bedroom of their grandchildren to see if they have yet figured out how to use a match and what a lighter is and, and what fire is all about. And if they see that the children have the ability to start the house on fire, they may step in let the child know in whatever way they can you don't want to you don't want to play with matches right now we are children playing with matches to use to use a metaphor and I, I think so that's my understanding of the relationship the three-way relationship between highly evolved beings human beings and our so-called defensive military establishments not just in this country but in other countries as well, that are starting to pay attention to what the U.S. military is saying. I think that was a, a brilliant observation from yourself, and I, I'm really grateful for that. And uh, I would completely echo your thoughts and feelings on that as well. I think that's, that's pretty much in alignment with how I would view uh, this whole issue with the UFO phenomenon. But um, we'll, let's move on to your, your latest book, The, the God Solution. So you wrote in this book. Also, by the way, before I jump into this question, was The God Solution, did you choose that title to be a kind of jab at uh, Richard Dawkins' atheistic book, The God Delusion? No. No, oh. I hadn't even thought about it until this just, just this minute. <laughs> I don't really take a jab at anybody. It's, it's, not, it's not my proclivity. And I wouldn't deliberately choose a title that was antagonistic or even a little bit slippery or slidey as a response or a reaction to to anybody else's writing. Of course, I'm aware of the book, uh, The God Delusion, but I, 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 I never even thought about it. Uh, uh, the God Solution emerged as a title uh, when I found myself beginning this latest book with a question, which I called The God Dilemma, and which is different from The God Delusion. The God Delusion is, you know, as I understood, I haven't, read, I haven't read the book, but I've heard about it, and from what I imagine it to be saying, Mr. Dawkins has been sharing his, his notion that people are deluded that, uh, with regard to the question of God, that we have been somehow you know, deluded into thinking there is a, such a thing as God uh, and that it's all um, not true and, and that we need to get our thinking straight. 
but the God dilemma is, is not quite the same as the God delusion in my vernacular. Um, to me, the God dilemma is a, a different question. It's a question that, uh, or, or it's, a, it's a statement, if you please, or a description uh, of people who do believe in God. They've, they've gone past the God delusion. Uh, that is, I don't think they're, they, they don't see themselves as being deluded around it. Of course, no one who's deluded sees themselves as being deluded, or they wouldn't be deluded, <laughs> obviously. But, but uh, these are people who have a firm belief in a higher power. Uh, in in my observation, um, but they don't know about that higher power. They don't know what it is, what it wants, what it requires, if anything. What what happens if it doesn't get what it requires from us? And and, and most profoundly of, of all, uh, they don't know how to use the higher power or much less that it can be used in almost a mechanical way, in almost a consistent, predictable way. So um, I called that as I began to write uh, this piece, uh, and it started off with just a question, basically. What's the point of having a God with the world such a mess? You know, I wrote the book in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of the uh, challenges we were facing globally, with our economies collapsing, or certainly shifting in major ways, and with even you know the the increased awareness of racial injustice and some other ways in which we are behaving with each other in a, in a rather primitive way. So, in, looking at all of that, I I started to ask a, a question of myself, and I put the question in writing. The book begins with the question: If there is a God. What's the point? What's the good of it? What's the use of it? Why bother having a God when the world is in such a mess? And for that matter, if you don't mind my saying so, that the species has been in one kind of a mess or another for thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. If it hasn't been this, it's been that. If it hasn't been this, it's been that. We've not had easy going on this planet at any point in time. Perhaps small numbers of people have, but in the largest sense, it's not been an easy trip here on the earth. So what's the point of having a God? And so I began the book with that question. Or is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand here about God? The understanding of which would change everything. And that's what I began to deeply explore if that was true, and it may not be true, hey, it's a hypothesis. I wrote the book as an hypothesis. But if that were true, hypothetically speaking, is it interesting enough for us and critical enough for us to begin to deeply explore what we've been told we're not supposed to explore? Don't ask questions. Do not ask questions. The answer has been given to you. The answers have been given to all of us. So you're not to question the answers we've been given. But is it time for us? Is it time for us as a species to finally ask the so-called unaskable question? The questions that are only asked by heretics or apostates or blasphemers, if you will. Dare we ask the blasphemous question? 
Do we have a misunderstanding here about God, about life itself, and about who we are? A misunderstanding so gargantuan that we have created these messes that I've been talking about ourselves? And we're waiting for God to somehow undo or unravel all the problems that we've created. When God has given us, in fact, all the tools we need with which to unravel it, we're simply not using the tools. So what is it that we don't understand? The understanding of which to delve deeply. And then the book offers uh, three, in particular, interesting answers. One, it offers a brand new definition of God. Let's start from scratch. Let's throw out all the old definitions of God and start with a brand new definition of God. A definition of God so different from our traditional definitions as to even call it spiritually revolutionary. Second, let's offer a process that people could use a different way of engaging life. Throwing out the ancient idea that your thoughts can change your reality. Or not really throwing it out, but expanding it to a new level. What if there was a tool even more powerful than your thoughts? What if all those, and there are many, many books, by the way, what if all those books about the power of positive thinking, as you think it, so shall it be, and all the rest, what if those books simply stopped short and didn't even come up with the whole and total answer? So that's the second tool that we are given in this book. And the third tool is a complete set of answers on how to master the mechanics of metaphysics. And I call these tools, these three aspects, all clumped together, I call it the God solution. There is a solution to the God dilemma, and I call it the God solution. And I invite people to take a look at it. I could be wrong about all of it. If it doesn't make any sense to anybody, throw it out. I mean, really, burn the book, tear it up and throw it away. But you know what's interesting? And then I'm done with my little diatribe here, but you know what's interesting? People who have read it are not throwing it away. They're not burning it. Practically to a person, they're saying, there it is, the God solution. So my thought about it is, if we can get enough people to pass on information to enough other people, we could finally win this human race. That was, once again, beautifully well put. You, you really do know how to summarize these these thoughts and feelings so well um the one of the things you mentioned near the end there was about the uh advancement in metaphysics and you know for me personally this this brings my own thoughts in because the way i kind of see it is we're fast approaching a time that um well I, I would call it the quantum age where our models of reality through physics our, our innovations through technology and our, and our overall desire for progression and understanding are moving closer towards a realization that, you know, it, that goes beyond the Newtonian, the, the dense material aspect of this universe and instead delving into the more 
mysterious conscious quantum reality that is the foundational framework you know if at least it seems to be the the underlying scaffolding of this physical realm and because of what would seem to me to be the inescapable root of a technologically driven pathway for the human species going forward just based on where we're at right now and where it looks like we're going my only hope is that through through the medium of science and technology, we eventually rediscover our sense of spirit by discovering that there is far more to this realm than the illusionary physical material it's supposedly comprised of, that we are all connected. You know, even if it's explained through a scientific lens of entangled quantum fields, how we're all expressions of an oscillating energy, you know, my hope is that we will see a symbiosis between science and spirituality for our empathy, our, our philosophy, to catch up and fall in balance with our technology. That's, forgive me for throwing roses right back at you, but that's equally well articulated and beautifully, oh, thank you. Put, beautifully put. And, and that's exactly what we were talking about here. And, and the, the, what, what has not been largely understood until recent times is in fact that everything is energy. You know, I hate to be simplistic, but everything in the universe is simply a manifestation of a certain oscillation of energy. And so all there is to life is energy in some form or another. And we call, or at least I call, the sum total of all that energy, God. That is what people call the higher power. There is a higher power, and the higher power is the sum total of all the energy in the universe clumped into one, if you please, and, uh, and sourced from a particular place, from a, from a particular um, source in the universe. Sourced by the source, which is like magic. It becomes the sorcerer. Yeah. So what, what we uh, are invited by uh, life to understand is that if life really is nothing more than uh, various oscillations of energy, is there any way that we can affect or impact that oscillation. That is, can energy affect energy in a way that alters the energy we seek to affect? And of course, the answer is yes. It does it all the time. We do, we do it mostly on this planet inadvertently, unconsciously, without even knowing we're doing it because only recently, and when I say recently, I mean in the most recent uh, couple hundred years, I don't mean you know, in the most recent thousand years, but in the, in the last two or three hundred years, we've come to really deeply understand that, yes, we're using this energy all the time. As the book, The God Solution puts it, the power is always on. The power is always on. And, and what God is inviting us to do is to use that power in the way that we would choose to use it to produce the outcomes of our preference. But right now we're using uh, that power, most of us, most people, unconsciously, without being aware that, that we're doing it. And that's why we're seeing the outcomes that, that we are seeing. But the, uh, the foundational energetic is what we want to discuss if we truly want to change our moment-to-moment, hour-to-hour, day-to-day behaviors. And that foundational energy, in my language, I call God. What is God really? You know, put it, you know, put it in, a, in a sentence for me, please, ladies and gentlemen. What, what is God? And what uh, the God solution suggests is that God can be redefined 
with two simple words. A two, imagine, a two-word definition of God. And so my audiences, when I give these lectures, recently in the past few months, online, I haven't been doing any lectures in person because, because of the dilemma that we've created on this planet with the pandemic. But in my online lectures, I've been saying, okay, here's the two-word definition of God. God is pure love. And inevitably, somebody from the audience raises their hand, I call them to the stage, and they say, I thought you were going to give us something really revolutionary, something brand new. Everyone understands God is love. That's the brand new idea? Whoop-de-doo. Who would disagree with that? <coughs> Excuse me. Anyone who agrees there is a God would say God is love. I said, wait a minute, guys. you got to hear what I said. I didn't say God is love. You didn't hear me say God is love. That would be simplistic and predictable and old hat. I said, God is pure love. That's a particular kind of love. Not human love, not love as we humans have understood it. And then my questioner will say, oh, oh, oh okay, what's the difference? The difference is that pure love wants, needs, hopes for, and demands nothing in return. Nothing. And so the book asks an astonishing question. Dare we believe? Can we be idea heroes and embrace a thought that we've had it all wrong about God from the beginning? That God is not simply observing? Can we release the notion that God is also judging and then condemning? and then punishing? Because if we can release those ideas, we then have a new model upon which to base human behaviors. See, we're all trying to do what we understand God does. We try to treat each other the way we understand God treats us, with judgment, condemnation, and punishment. But what if, what if God did not treat us that way? Now, when I say this is revolutionary, you gotta understand, check it out, don't believe me, just check it out. 90% of the world's religions teach of a God of judgment, condemnation, and punishment. Look into it. It might take you some time, by the way, because you may not know that there are 4,300 religions on the face of the earth. You heard me right. I said there are 4,300 organized religions on the planet right now, each with their own set of understandings and awarenesses but none of which violate or step away from the central notion that unless we do what God wants, God will judge us, condemn us, and punish us. And these are not small things. I'll get done with this current diatribe in a minute, but let me share with you how deep this goes. Billions of people, not a couple hundred thousand, not a couple hundred million, but billions of people believe that if you don't belong to the right religion, if you don't belong to a particular religion, you're going to hell. You will suffer endless punishment, torture, agony in the fires of hell. 
because you simply chose the wrong religion. doesn't matter how nice you were, how kind you were, how good you were, how patient you were, how understanding you were, how loving you were, how generous you were, how forgiving you were. None of that matters. You could be the nicest person on the face of the earth, but you know what? What can I tell you? You belong to the wrong religion. And, you know, to use God's words, dems the rules. So you're out. You're out. But if you belong to the right religion, you're in no matter how you behave. You can even be a scoundrel. But if in the end you believe in God in a certain way, God will forgive you. So I have brought forth a different revolutionary idea. I get asked and invited to talk in churches a lot. And the first thing I say at churches is, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad to see you here. I've come to you today and I stand here in the pulpit before you to bring you an interesting message. God will never forgive you for anything. And the place goes crazy. The people don't know what to do with that. I have to say, well, you know, let me explain. God will not forgive you for anything because it's impossible for you to hurt, injure, damage, upset, frustrate, or anger God in any way. Any more than a three-year-old child could frustrate and anger you enough to make you want to punish it with everlasting punishment of some sort. And why? When your three-year-old granddaughter spills the milk into your lap, maybe you did it deliberately as a joke, maybe, or perhaps as a mistake. What do you say to that three-year-old granddaughter? Go to your room. Don't come out of your room for the next 17 years. I'll teach you. And you're lucky I didn't make you stay in there for the rest of your life. No, we don't punish a three-year-old girl. We don't chastise a three-year-old boy for making those kinds of mistakes or for pulling a bad joke that didn't turn out really well. We don't do that. No, what the grandpa says to the grandchild is, it's okay, sweetheart, I forgive you. No, we don't even do that. You don't forgive a three-year-old child. Forgiveness is not part of the equation. What do you do when the child sees what she's done and that she didn't really mean to create such an outcome and she starts to cry at her own mistake, her own misbehavior? Do we punish the child? Do we condemn the child? Do we forgive the child? No, we don't do any of that. We hold the child in our arms, bring the child to us close, embrace the child with love. And we say to the child, it's okay, sweetheart. Grandpa loves you. It's okay, don't cry. Don't cry. It's okay. And you know what? I have this crazy thought that God is at least as nice as my grandpa. Could be wrong. I could be wrong. That's the God solution. This is easily the most important conversation that I've had since I've made this uh, 
this youtube channel and 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 done what i've been doing now it's it's coming up on two o'clock in your time and we were booked in till two but do you have a little bit more time to spare for me to ask a few more questions i have the next 10 days <laughs> well i'll hold you to that because we're going to go for a 10-day podcast now no I'm, I'm only joking but um thank you so much for that that was so beautifully put um wow uh what i was going to say next is that you you wrote in this book that surveys show that nearly 85 percent of the world's people identify with a religious group and believe in a controlling power yet the world is still a mess so what difference does it make whether God exists or not? And, and this is an interesting observation that you put in your book when you think about the, the benefit of spiritual practices on a personal or, or localized level, benefits that can, can cause a total shift in someone's life choices. But, but these practices and beliefs are still, for the most part, unable to shift the, the corruption and, and degradation of, of moralistic value on a macro scale, on a global scale. You know, we are currently dealing uh, with so many problems in this world, as you mentioned in this book, from a, from a global pandemic to, to racial injustice, economic collapse. And, and you go on to say that there comes a moment in every species' development when timidity no longer serves, when more than the proverbial lone voice in the wilderness cries out to be heard when it's fair question time. So... Let me ask, why, why do you think the world is in the state it is in? And is the solution to so much of the suffering in this world a belief in some form of higher power than ourselves? Or is it more to do with the realization of the higher power that resides within each of us as individuals? Well, those last two statements are, are uh, a single statement combined into, into two. Mm -hmm. you, you, you said, is it either or? You know, and I'm going to say it's both and. It's both, and there, there is both a higher power, and it resides within all of us. So it's not either or. It's not this or that. It's both this and that. Yeah. In in my clear understanding. And with regard to your first question, I have I seem to be getting into a pattern of answering your questions backward, in reverse. But in answer to your first question, why, why are why is the world in such a mess? Because we're a very young species because we are the three-year-olds of the universe, metaphorically speaking. And uh, it's been written in another book, the title of which I have forgotten in a moment, but it's a wonderful book. I think it's called New World, New Time. I forgot the title of it, but forgive me. But in the book, it's, 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 we were given a, an analogy. We're invited by the authors of the book to think of the planet Earth uh, and its age. Think of the age of the Earth and overlay it on a calendar year just for purposes of scale. And the authors say, if you took the, and they've researched this, by the way, this is not just an opinion. They looked at this uh, anthropologically speaking. If you take the earth and overlay it on a calendar year in terms of age, like the earth came into being on January 1st and making today December 31st, if, if we take the age of the earth on a calendar year basis, then the first form of life Single cell, single cell life, the most primitive form of life, occurred on this planet, on this third rock from the sun, uh, in in February of uh, on this calendar year. More sophisticated life forms, birds in the air, fish in the sea, uh, appeared on the Earth somewhere around the, the end of November on that scale. On that scale, dinosaurs first appeared on the Earth on December the fifth. 
On that time scale, dinosaurs disappeared from the Earth on December the 25th. On that time scale, humanoids, that is not human beings, but animals that began to walk on two legs and, and act a bit like humans, appeared on December 31st. And on that scale, the entirety of human history, as we have recorded it, took place in the last 60 seconds of the year. Now, that's how young we are in, as a species in relationship to the age of the Earth. Forget about the age of the cosmos. In terms of the age of the cosmos, we're like a blink of an eye old. And that's the answer to the question. Why are we in such a mess? Why have we been behaving the way we've been behaving? And why are, why are we creating not all, but the largest number of the disasters that have been visited upon the human species? That's the answer. It's like asking a two-year-old, why did you spill the milk? Because you're two years old. It's as simple as that. And you don't have to be forgiven for that. Here's something that I want everybody listening to this program to write in their bathroom, on the bathroom mirror. I want you to place this message on your bathroom mirror. Put it up there in lipstick or get a bar of soap and, you know, and write it in soap or put a little uh, uh, message on a piece of paper and tack it to the bathroom mirror. Remember this always. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Did you catch that? I'll give it to you again in case you missed it. Write it down. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. When we understand how a person could do such a thing, whatever it is that we are bemoaning, when we understand for that matter how we could do some of the things that we have done, said some of the things that we have said, when we understand, then we forego forgiveness and we go right straight to compassion and love and to solution. Not who's to blame, but what's the solution. And I call this the God solution. See, one last thing, Jay. There's a process called melding. And it's offered in the book as a powerful process, a powerful tool. We've been told, book after book after book, your thoughts create your reality. As a man thinketh was written by James, uh, uh, a man named James, no, I forgot his name, uh, many, many years ago, at the beginning of the last century. Uh, the book was called As a Man Thinketh. Other books have come along since then. As I mentioned earlier, The Power of Positive Thinking, As You Think So, It'll Be Done Unto You, blah, 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 blah. But we now know is that that's, here we go again, a primitive level of metaphysical utilization. What we really want to use is not our thoughts, but our emotions. Emotion is emotion, energy in motion. Those emotions can be created by our thoughts, but the emotions are the most powerful form of energetic projection. So we are invited to not only pay attention to the first emotion that comes up for us whenever anything is occurring uh, in our life, 
but in fact to meld our emotion with what we understand God's feeling to be. And God's feeling would be, in every case, pure love. Pure love. Love that requires, asks for, demands, expects nothing in return. So now when we are confronted with any exterior event or circumstance in our life, be it intensely personal or global in nature, we get to look at our own emotion as it arises within us and then meld that with God's feeling until our emotion and God's feeling become one. And then let that be the energy that we project onto the outer circumstance, event, or experience with which we are confronted. If everyone did that, the world would change overnight. It's really quite simple. You could call it the God solution. You have a you have an uncanny ability to answer questions that I haven't asked yet. So I've been here going, oh right, don't need to ask that anymore because my next question was going to be about the energetic value of of emotion and and how you see emotion being a necessary component of the the whole kind of like thought manifestation. Uh, process is that if you, you you do have to have the emotional resonance meeting with that thought to kind of imbue it with that power, uh, which is pretty much what you you just covered there. But um, I have a I have a two part question here for you. First of all, do you do you believe that we as humans are capable of creating a so called utopian society? And secondly, is a utopian society ultimately desirable in the first place. I'm, I'm reminded of a quote from the conversation with God Books where it says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, we say we want to fix all of the problems, but we dare not fix all of the problems. We're, we're all invested in keeping the game going because if we fix all the problems, then there'll be nothing left to do. So to repack that again for you, do you believe that we're capable of creating a utopian society and is a utopian society ultimately desirable in the first place? The answer is yes to both questions, uh, in my opinion. And um, the, re the reason that it is desirable is that it doesn't mean that the opposite uh, in the contextual field, uh, uh, the opposite of a utopian society um, would not exist. It means it simply wouldn't exist in our society. It could exist on another planet, perhaps on a planet even younger than ours. Maybe we'll find out in not too many years that we have the ability to visit other planets and maybe we will be hovering over those planets, <laughs> looking down with our you know, glasses, our big magnifying glasses at them going, look at what they're arguing about. Gosh, remember when we were there. Remember when we would actually use anger to bring an end to anger. Remember when we would actually use violence to bring an end to violence? Remember when we would actually use hatred to bring an end to hatred? Remember when we would actually use the energy that created the problem to try to solve the problem? Even though one of the greatest minds among us, Einstein told us, you can't do that. You can't use the energy that created the problem to solve the problem. Stop it. It's so simple. Stop it. But that would require 
a revolutionary idea of how God treats us. And there's the connection. See, wait, wait, now wait a minute, we can't stop it. Are you saying we shouldn't punish those who do bad things to us? Are you saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't judge anybody else? We shouldn't, nobody should ever be condemned? You know, what are you trying to say? But if we listen to the teachings of some of the world's greatest teachers, we will hear an interesting thought echoing through the eons. Interesting thought echoing through all the teachings of all the teachers. One teacher put it in a way that made it pretty hard to forget. He said, love, love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who would do you harm and raise not your fist to heaven and curse the darkness not but be a light unto the darkness that you might know who you really are and that all those whose lives you touch will one day know who they really are as well. Maybe I misunderstood what he was trying to tell us, but I don't think so. Now that really does seem at least from my point of observation, to be the the real challenge of of life and and the reward, um, you know, to to find that ability to conjure up love in the times where it's not easy to do that. You know, it's it's, it's easy for me to phone up my mum and tell her that I love her, and it's easy for me to you know tell my friends that I love them. Um, not so easy to do that when someone has hurt me or, or you know and i'm sure everyone else can the feel only the way you way. could possibly do it would be if you understood who you really are let's move into that part of this discussion see because everything i've said here for the past hour in this or so revolves around a larger understanding of who we really are so it, be, it doesn't become difficult it becomes easy when you understand who you really are that is let's see who am i am i am i just a, a physical entity Am I just a physical life form, not unlike that bird in the sky or the fish in the sea? A bit more complex, perhaps, fair enough. But um, you know, at the bottom line, just another form of life? You know, I'm born, I live, I die, and that's it? Or is it possible? Just possible that I'm more than that, that I'm a spiritual entity having a body and a mind. What if my body is not who I am? What if it's something I have? What if my mind is not the essence of me, but simply something that I use? What if my true identity is that I'm a spiritual being, having a physical experience? If that were true, I mean, hypothetically, if that were true, wouldn't we then have an entirely different context within which to experience what's going on and a new way to understand why it would even make sense to love those who have hurt you and to extend love to that person who has hurt us? Because if we understood that we were spiritual entities, it would be clear to us that we can't be hurt. 
the essence of who we are cannot be hurt, damaged, destroyed, upset, disappointed, frustrated, or injured in any way. My spirit isn't going to be hurt or damaged or injured if you say bad things about me. I mean, by the way, speaking about having bad things said about him, I had the news, newspapers in London calling me a, a, a heretic. Newspapers in Singapore calling me, in fact, a an apostate, a blasphemer. People around the world are calling me names. And in some cases, some pretty important people. You know what? Gotta love them. Gotta have compassion for anyone who's coming from their deepest belief, hoping to do so without injury to another, conjuring up the bravery to say for them what's true for them, and hopefully, if nothing else, we can find a way to disagree agreeably. But only if I understood who I really am and what my purpose is. So I'm clear now that I'm not a physical life form. Simply, I am in fact a spiritual being. Having a physical experience and the point of it in order to serve the agenda of the soul. And the agenda of the soul? Evolution, my friend the expansion of my awareness, of my understanding, of my expression, of my demonstration, and of my experience of my true identity, that I am, in fact, an individuation of divinity. I am to God as a wave is to the ocean. The wave is not separate from the ocean. It's not other than the ocean. It's simply a magnificent, powerful, beautiful, glorious expression arising from the ocean. And when that expression is complete, it recedes back into the ocean whence it came. That is precisely the relationship that I have with God. And my physical life provides me an opportunity to demonstrate that. And in the moments when I demonstrate it, not nearly enough, thank you very much, but in the moments when I do, I have experienced the bliss, the joy, the fulfillment of who I really am. All of you have. There's not a person in the sound of my voice right now who has not had at least one or two moments in their life when they've been their most magnificent self, even forgave the unforgivable, showed up as more generous than they ever thought they could possibly be, experienced their most magnificent self, and when they walk away from that moment, they say to themselves, now that's who I am. That's who I am. What would it take for me to be that in every moment of my life? Ah, so he said, that wonderful guy who came from your country, he put it perfectly. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to rise up against a sea of troubles and by opposing to end them, or as he said somewhere else in his writing, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. You know, I, I find myself to be like a pendulum you know, and in the middle is is that is that sweet spot where I I do have exactly what you're talking about that that feeling of uh, of connectivity of of bliss and 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 too often it swings out one way and swings back another way and 
Uh, I would love to stay as centered as I possibly could. In, cause in someone else to stay as centered as they possibly could. The way to do that is to be the cause of someone else having the experience that you wish to have. Whatever you want to experience in your life, whatever it might be, staying in that place of center or whatever else your objective might be in any moment, be the source of that in the experience of another. Cause another to have the experience that you wish to have and you'll discover that what flows through you sticks to you. It's not a mistake. It's not a coincidence that virtually every major spiritual messenger that we know of in human history has been a teacher, has shared this experience with others. So simply be the cause of what you wish to experience. Be the cause of that in the life of another. Well, that's, that, that is, it, it, to be fair, I mean, that's my, my little attempt at doing that. It was creating this platform and, and doing the, the, you know, the talks I, I do and, and, and conversing with people and something that comes up to me and I, I, it, it, it seems right is that you don't have to act on what you know to be a teacher, but the more you teach, the more you act on what you know. Um, in, in the, in the, in the fact that, you know, I don't always practice what I, what I preach, which is not a good thing. Um, but the more that I hear other people, the, you know, the, the more emails I get, the more messages I get from people that have said, thank you. Um, it really does make me realize that there's something profound to being able to reach out to others and receive that message back and, and realize that there is this power within all of us to, to help each other and to enact, enact some form of change. Unlike you, you know, I, I'm different from you in that way. Unlike you, I practice what I preach all the time. Humility is my highest quality. <laughs> and I, he laughs. Are you <laughs> I think humor is one of I'm your highest qualities. Strike now. him dead. <laughs> not only does he not belong to the right religion, he actually laughs at the source. Amazing. Can you believe it? I, unbelievable. You are an unbelievable character. I can see. So are you now. Yeah. So are you. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap this up? People have asked me many times, what is the most important single message that I've received in the 39 Conversations with God books? Uh, the 39 books that belong to the, to the cosmology, nine of which are dialogue books, and 30 of which are books that explore more deeply the content in those dialogue books. And I can tell you that I always give the same answer. I remember that, that uh, I was asked that question by Matt Lauer on the Today Show, a major television morning show in America. What's the most important message of the Conversations with God books, in your opinion? And it came when I asked God, what does it take? What does it take? My very first question. What does it take to make life work? And I remember the answer I got was in a little bit of a chuckle in God's voice. Not a derisive chuckle, not an insulting kind of an energy, but just the kind of way you chuckle if a three or four year old asked you, how many stars are in the sky? You would just chuckle at the beautiful, pure innocence of the question. <laughs> and you would, then you'd give the best answer you could give. 
And the answer that I received to my question, what does it take to make life work? What is it that I don't understand? And she said, sweetheart, sweetheart, it's so simple. You think your life is about you. And your life has nothing to do with you. It's about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. Yet if you come from that place, you will see that in the largest sense, life is about you because guess what? There's nobody else here. All things are one thing. There is only one thing. And all things are part of the one thing there is. Therefore, what you do for me, you do for you. What you fail to do for another, you fail to do for you. It's really quite simple. I, I really don't know where to go uh, from here. I, I'm, I'm just enjoying listening to you, Neil. <laughs> I really am. I'm just enjoying listening to what you have to say. And, uh, you know, we've, we've covered a few different things. Um, I suppose, actually, before we wrap up, one question, um, if I can bring it back to the, the God solution. Talk about how we, uh, as a people, have potentially engaged in creating what you called a rewards must be earned culture based on a rewards must be earned theology. Could, could you just maybe unpack that a little bit and let us know what you were referring to here? Well, yes, I'm referring to the nature of divinity and the nature of you know, what we call paradise. You're perfectly correct. I did say in the book that we have created a rewards must be earned theology, a theology that says there's wonderful stuff awaiting for you in heaven, but there are things you have to do to deserve it. There are things you have to deserve, have to do to deserve my love. There are things you have to avoid doing that you may not do uh, to, to deserve my love. But if you do those things or avoid those things that I told you to avoid, then, um, or if I'm in the mood to forgive you, if you, you know, fail in some of those areas, then uh, maybe you can deserve to come back to me in heaven and and spend eternity in paradise. But it's a it's a reward and punishment uh, universe that we live in that I have created, says God. And so, um, what I have been told in my conversations with God, and what I've explained quite clearly and simply and with great focus in the God solution is maybe that's what we have not understood. Ah, is it possible that there's something we don't completely understand here about God and about life and about ourselves? The understanding of which would change everything. And the answer is yes. We don't understand that we do not live in a reward and punishment universe. We live in a universe of unconditional love and that there's no way when we do the thing called die or what i say when we celebrate our continuation day there's no way that we're not going to return to that place that some of us describe as paradise that we don't return to the spiritual realm experience our oneness with god with all that is with everyone else who's ever touched our lives and oneness in fact with ourselves 
in a profound way. There's no way that we would be judged, condemned, or punished. And so that's why we focus so highly on the idea that we do not live in any reward or punishment universe because that implication has enormous impact, enormous impact with regard to life on earth. What if we created a construction of life on earth that was not foundationed in a reward and punishment paradigm? What if you didn't have to do anything to get me to love you and to get me to give you all the gifts I have to give without needing anything in return? Is it possible for a species such as ours to move into such a culture? I'm saying yes to answer the question you asked before because that would be a utopian society. But we are capable of creating that and I'm suggesting to you that it has been created and does exist elsewhere in this cosmos. This has been, um, honestly, it's, it's been such a, a profound and, and, and beautiful conversation. And I think, because I do, I know my audience, and, and like I said, this is the first time I've had someone on that isn't explicitly involved in, in the UFO conversation, although I have had many people on talking about the consciousness connection to that issue. Um, I think this has been a really unique discussion. Um, Neil, thank you so much. And I... I I would love I would love another opportunity at some point to to talk to you again because I, I've just found this to be very productive and I, I, for myself personally and I also think the people listening to this who usually tune into my platform will find this to be a, a very an enlightening and and uh, an important discussion. So I just want to thank you for that. Absolutely, you're very kind, and of course, thank you for having me on and bringing me to your audience uh, and I, I appreciate the chance to do so thank you for those kind words and as far as as, as far as us doing this again um, it could only happen uh, if you do everything I tell you to do mm -hmm. never disobey anything right. that I've laid down as the rules yep finally please if you don't mind belong to the right religion of course and, and as well as belong to the right political party because I've looked into your political <laughs> oh my god <laughs> What in the hell is the matter with you? But if you can get your life in order, then possibly we could do this again. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and check your box of prerequisites, Neil, and uh, and then I will uh, hopefully get in contact with you again. And uh, we'll see. We'll and I will see. not <laughs> I will not be as, as much of a heretic next time. <laughs> it, it would be it would do you some good. Thank you. <laughs>